Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. Dave, you know the greatest thing to pull on the operations people who work at BusyWeb? Uh, no. What is it? Give them a client who will say, after they've worked hard on the creative process, come up with a really good tagline, really good uh, copy, really good design somehow, put uh-huh. it in front of the client. The client says, I, I don't like it. Yeah. And that's it. And no feedback, no, no interaction. Yeah. 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 So uh, we've been trying to coach the clients a little to help about how we can you can give more things and how you can talk about authenticness because that's one of the things that we try and tease out with our clients is is being authentic and being true. Don't overwordsmith. Don't use twelve words where other things can't it can work. Talk about be be truthful and. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, I think we could use a little help. So uh, I brought in a pro today. Ooh. So our, our guest today is uh, Hirsch Rafoon, which is Repoon is actually how you pronounce his name because I asked I even asked him how to pronounce it. I, I, I pooched it. So the comedy is starting. Uh, Hirsch, Hirsch is a longtime stand-up comedian and is considered a daddy of niche PR. And he was one of the first people in the world to curate images of filmmakers, composers, editors in the commercial production field. So he's also led teams in PR, creative, brand strategy, and is the host of not one but two podcasts, which I just think is tremendous. Uh, One of which is called The Truth Tastes Funny, and the other is called Brand PR. Or Yes Brand, right? Yes Brand. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, Brand. So, yeah. Hey, Hirsch, how are you? I'm great, Trigvi. Thank you so much for that stellar introduction and for the rest of the introduction. And uh, it was wonderful. I love it. The easiest part is the is the name of the second show. Yes, Brand. Yes, and especially for you, for somebody who's done improv. Yes, uh, that's the easy part. The repoon, which you nailed on the second try, is. You know, that's already puts I you in an elite. Because we're going to edit out the mispronunciation. That's oh, don't. Go don't. On gag reel. We're going don't for authenticity today. Yeah. Don't, don't edit it out. Uh, Dave, great to see you as well. Likewise, Thank likewise. you guys for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to be here. First, I want to ask you a deeply personal and uh, kind of a bummer question. Okay. So when I went through improv training it was a painful experience for me because one of the things that came out of it is i realized that i had spent the majority of my life apologizing to other people for being funny so let's start with this when did you know you were funny um i knew well i i definitely knew i was funny by the age of seven I I use seven I, for some reason. Seven is a is a watershed year for me as a performer. I was in second grade. I played the scarecrow in a school production of The Wizard of Oz. It was the moment where I saw the reaction of an audience versus a 
just a classmate or a parent or a relative. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I kind of got that I was funny, but I think when I, w and, and it wasn't that the performance was strictly a comedic performance, but it was very magical for me. And so I think that was, that was when I first realized, ah, this is something I go, I put this out there and it gets this reaction. I have this power to, to, to wield. So, uh, that was, that was really the beginning of it. When did you realize it was okay to be funny? Um, when the bruises started to heal. Um, no, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I think the, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated Trigby by the uh, apologetic nature of, cause I do, I do experience that, but, I think I experienced it in that there's something about artists and comedians and jokers that's, you know, less than it's, you know, mm -hmm. to, to some people who are serious people. And, um, I was encouraged at home and my, my dad was extremely funny. So I don't know that I ever apologized for it or felt mm -hmm. that it wasn't okay. I think career wise is another story. The idea that I would make a career somehow rooted in it is something that I, that I really wrestled with. I think for me, what I had realized that getting into sort of, especially an advanced level improv training is I would be sort of an aw shucks sheepish. Oh, I'm sorry if I, if I, if I offended and I would start conversations that way, mm. which number one I think was really denying a, an essential per part of who I am as a person. And number two, it was also denying me the opportunity to have authentic relationships with people. So I was then career wise in places where I didn't necessarily want to be, but I also had put myself there. And then being in a place where I didn't feel appreciated, I didn't feel wanted. Well, that's true because I wasn't being who I really was as a person. Oh, yeah, I can relate to that. That's, it's interesting because hearing you say it that way, it, it, it is something I really relate to because I, I divided my, my professional life into doing, you know, when I was in, in uh, college and after college in New York, doing stand up and doing clubs and doing that thing and having that life and then working in computers or advertising or, whatever I was doing to pay bills where I felt like, especially when I was selling computers retail, you know, and I was like, okay, I'm literally shutting my self down for 10 hours a day. I'm, I'm nobody. I wore mm -hmm. the same thing yeah. every day. I wore the same like uh, uh, denim shirt and jeans every day. You know, there was no dress code. You just had to, Denim, you know? denim, denim. So you're talking about the nineties. Yeah. 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 93. Uh -huh. And, um, and I wore, I did that as a, like on purpose. I had the same album that I, it was a Garth Brooks album that I listened to that I listened to during my lunch break every day. I was like a zombie, honestly. Mm -hmm. So that was a very tough, uh, very tough time. How did you kind of fun? And I, I think, there's, there's a good analog to what I started BusyWeb at because when I looked across the sea of cubicles at my brand new bank job that I started in 1999, I thought that I had to do something to save my soul as well. 
Mm-hmm. And so that led me to forming the LLC that let, later turned into this little company that we have and that Trigvi and I work at. So I've noticed in, in our brief chat prior to beginning the podcast, but also in researching you up, Hirsch, that you're a serial entrepreneur. You've got a lot of irons in the fire. You're, you're out there and you're working with all kinds of people and helping them craft brand. Tell us about what led to that entrepreneurial journey and kind of what your favorite parts of that journey are right now. Thanks, Dave. That's interesting because, you know, so many times we, we have an idea of who we are. And this goes back to what Trigby was also saying. Yeah. We have an idea of who, of who we are or who our destiny is or what we're supposed to be. And we either chase that, fight it, go with it, whatever. But we, we forget that we still have choices. Like if I am working in advertising, I must have chosen it versus going on the road as a comedian, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, oh, I screwed up. I should have gone on the road as a comedian, or I should have done this. I should have taken this role in this movie, even though it conflicted with my obligations at home. You know, like you, you think you're making mistakes or being unlucky. And what you're really doing is you're making choices. You just aren't accepting that you're really making them. Mm-hmm. And I think that when things started to turn around for me was when I, like, for example, I never worked. I, I was a copywriter, but I did it on the side. I, I were, had a different job representing directors and composers and editors and doing all kinds of PR and other semi-creative stuff, but not creating ads. And I did it a little bit. I would get asked by people to do it. But I never interviewed at an ad agency for a copywriting job. I never partnered with an art director, created a book, and went out there and, and tried to get that, that kind of job. And, you know, why? Why not? Why wouldn't I go work at Saatchi or some? Why couldn't I? And I would go visit friends that were working at Shy Day in LA and had all these cool jobs. And, you know, and I was like, what, why, am I, why do I not do that? Okay, I don't know. Just back of the mm-hmm. head. And I realized I'm always owning my own business or partnering in a business. I'm always putting myself in a position of responsibility and leadership and then thinking that I'm supposed to be some kind of talent for hire. Mm-hmm. And so I, I realize I'm always the boss and yet I'm telling people I'm not a boss or a business person. But meanwhile, I had started two successful you know, niche PR firms. I had started a kind of a production outfit that was more of a community thing than a moneymaker, but really good. I had done a foray into comedy. I'd moved my family across the country from New York to LA. I've like had done all these things and yet thinking I'd even gotten hired to write some screenplays. Granted, not, you know, I had written 10 or 12 or 15 that I hadn't sold, but, you know, they, I had done a hundred meetings in Hollywood with a writing partner uh, who I adored and it was, you know, didn't get any deals, but like we decided to stop, not, not Hollywood. Like we just said, this is bullshit. And we were like, why are we doing this? We're, we're, it's crazy. And so, you know, I realized that, wow, I have much more control than I thought. And that's when the yes brand thing started to come together, which took several years to really gel. But the idea was, 
yeah, I really love working with brands. I really have an ear for people's voices, which is what I do in comedy, character voices, accents, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm a good mimic, but brands need a, a mimic too. Brands need someone who understand their voice and listen to their voice and then makes it polished, correct, sure. translated to their audience and impactful mm-hmm. to their audience. And I thought, that is what I like to do. And that is the best of what I've always done. And so eventually, I, I owned up to that. And that's when I started doing some of the other entrepreneurial stuff, the Kosher brand, which is a, a, a purpose-driven streetwear brand mm-hmm. that I put like a, you know, during the pandemic, my business partner in that, and I put like a year's worth of, you know, time of just kind of, you know, we didn't, it wasn't purely altruistic because we didn't have anything else to do. We had a bunch of other, we, we worked in the sneaker market doing, you know, marketing and everything got shut down for that year. So it was like, okay, let's do that. Let's revive this idea and let's do it. And we made it real. But by that time I had realized, yeah, this is, we can do this. I can do this versus, you know, uh, it's, I'm a, I'm a talent quote unquote, and someone has to come and exploit me and pay me a lot of money for my talent. And that's what I'm saying. I I don't know where I got that idea, but that's what I think my thought always was. Mm -hmm. I'm this thing. I'm supposed to be exploited, handled, managed, you know, and directed. And, you know, that was my, that was my perception, but it was a misperception. Yeah. Who is Inspector Gerard Rouge? Ah, yeah, Inspector Gerard Rouge. So Inspector Gerard Rouge is the the creation of a dear friend of mine who sadly passed away last year, a writer-director named Boris Damast. And Boris was a client of mine twice. He was, when I was in New York early in my career representing directors and doing PR for them via the company that I was at. He was rep by that company and we got along then. And then when I had my own PR firm, he was a client and I did his PR. He was a commercial director, but very, very gifted as a writer and filmmaker. And so what happened was he, uh, he reached out to me during the pandemic and said, I, I see, I had been making these videos on Instagram under an account called three times daily comedy, three X daily comedy, like the amount, the doses of comedy you need to survive the pandemic. Basically I did it, did it for myself and my friends. I wasn't, I still don't know how to market on Instagram. So I wasn't really marketing on Instagram, but I was, was keeping me sane and my kids would be in it. And, you know, we would do, I would do at least three times a day, silly videos. And he saw them and he was like, you know, I have this script for a uh, a farcical detective series. And I didn't write it this way, but I think you could probably play all the parts. <laughs> and he said, I'll direct you. He was in Santa Monica. I was in Iowa City. And he said, I'll, I'll direct you. You know, I'll advise you remotely. You'll show me the takes. We'll... And for a couple of months, we did this show. And I didn't, I had never done a thing before that, like a acting thing per se that I had no writing role on. And this was so off the wall and so nuts with the first script he sent to me. And I probably punched up a couple of jokes. I don't. And then after that, I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'll throw ideas in, 
Mm-hmm. I'll throw an idea and, oh, what if I did this? Like on set. Mm-hmm. But I won't tinker with the script. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to trust you. And uh, I'm so proud of it. And I'm so sad that he passed away suddenly yeah. last year. And it was just a, sh- a shock. I mean, he was, you know, uh, you know, in his seventies and, mm-hmm. you know, it was just a terrible loss. And I was like, so glad that we got to do that, you know, cause we had plans to in the, in the aftermath of the pandemic, get together and actually work together on something in person. But I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to do it. Where, especially now that there's a touching story behind it, where can people find it? If they go to, uh, to YouTube and they search uh, Inspector Gerard Rouge, G-E-R-A-R-D-R-O-U-G-E. And I think, it's, I think the account is Straight Arrow, Straight Arrow Pictures or Straight Arrow Films. Mm-hmm. And the producer is uh, a woman, Andrea Kikot, who was, uh, who was Boris's partner and also a, a friend and his producer. And so, um, yeah, so it's there. It's, and if you search me, and it's also on IMDb, I mean, for people who use that. Um, so it's, it's not hard to find. And I think there's six episodes, seven, six, something like that. I love it. Yeah. I can't wait to check them out. But, and my kids are in it. We had, my wife doesn't like to appear in the, you know, she's a little more behind the scenes. She's uh-huh. also been a filmmaker and stuff. So, she, but she's, she's definitely a behind the scenes personality. But one of my daughters, uh, DP'd it for the most part. She's 15, wow. but she was also in it. And my other daughter who's eight appeared in a, in a, in a couple of episodes. So it's, it was fun. Oh, wow. I think one of the things that is, is, is very obvious about you is that you enjoy the process of creating and creating content. And I think a lot of people, especially if you don't have that sort of creative juice, they, they struggle with that. I think you've yeah. sort of risen to the at le- level of being a content influencer. So can you talk about how the work, uh, number one, how do you, how do you come up with things? I know for me, I, ca- I can't explain it. It just, it just flows. Is that the same for you? I usually react to something. I definitely feel I'm a reactor. Like even if I sit down and look at a blank piece of paper, I'm going to react to something and that's what's going to make me write. And that's where it always starts. So I can, we can, I don't know, it's not forced, but we can contrive the situation where a client says, okay, I'm going to tell you about my, my brand and where I'm at and where I'm stuck and, and I'll, or they're just, they don't even know me and they're talking to me at a party and I come up with something or I write something down or I say something, you know, and I have an idea in response, but it's always, it's always in response, which is why I liked doing improv mm-hmm. and stand up is the response happened in the writing part or the vibe or the energy of the audience. Very rarely what somebody in the audience does or says, because yeah. that's such a such a small deceptively small part of of stand up but with improv it's it's all that how fast can you react how fast can you give you know something to the partner that's the thing that a lot of people don't appreciate about improv is the punchlines are never the issue 
it's it's the setup and the real genius of guys like Colin Mockery is isn't how fast and funny they are. A lot of people can do that. It's how can I make you be fast and funny? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, something the, a lot of the, people don't get. The generosity of that art form is something that truly appeals to me. And when you're watching those performers, you watch, you know, Greg Proops and, you know, all the, all those people, Wayne Brady and, uh, you know, I mean, and people that have gone on to, you know, to SNL and, and, and whatnot, but that, that I think we saw that in the first season of SNL, we Mm -hmm. saw, we, you know, you, you got that, that thing that, that was happening, that energy Mm -hmm. that was there of, of this giving, giving, giving to the other person to set them up you know, and to hit it, you know, when you're pitched something and they pitch something to you and you just hit, you just swing at it. And you're like, so grateful that they just threw that ball to you. It's uh, it is a, it is a great sport. Absolutely. That's tremendous. Yeah. It, and it kind of strikes me that as, as we're talking improv and especially as you've brought up a few times, the idea of reacting and connecting one of the things that we do as an organization at BusyWeb is to work with our customers to help them not, not so much build their brand because we, we kind of pick up after they know who they are, but to express that brand and to really engage with their customers. So I think the, the, big, the big next step for us, or what I'd love to hear from you, Hirsch, is what do you do to bring a brand around so that they can hear what their customers want and to start identifying with them. Ah, oh, uh, that's, that's a, that, that is a, a real, uh, that's a, I was going to say, that's a tough one, Dave, which it is, but it's, a, it's, it's the, it's the, at the core of, of the, the client relationship, the stuff that we mm-hmm. do. And, and anyone who knows me has heard me say, you know, well, they don't always listen. Right. Right? Well, they don't always, you know, and I, and I do feel like that is kind of the, the first step is me listening and letting them basically vomit out all the, whatever they want to say about their, their brand and their story and their history. And, but see if they stop talking, because if they stop talking, that means they are actually want to hear what you have to say, you know, uh, you've had those meetings where, you, you know, you get called in. Well, I called you guys in because I hear you the best. And then I went, I went on, I want to know now I'm building this and I'm building that and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And they did that, but they were lying and they, so they sued me. So what did mm-hmm. I do? I told them to go fuck themselves. And then they would call me again. And then this guy's wife wouldn't shut up. And I was like, okay, give it your way, have it your way. And then it's like, but I can't go, but the customer's telling me this. And then what do I do? And you're about to go. Well, then, you know, it's, it doesn't, so, but if they, if they stop, then, you know, it's, it's fine. Right. Mm-hmm. If they mm-hmm. stop, then you're on the spot and they're, you're, they're ready for your feedback. And I think that, I think that that's, you cannot, now you can bring them around from their preconception mm-hmm. about you know, what they, what they expect versus what the reality is. Sure. We see ourselves as a blank. 
you, you guys, me, we're trying to show them that really they're perceived as a this, but that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is, you know, sometimes I think that that comes with the development of the relationship and trust, building the trust. But their personality type is what I look for right away. Because even if they have like a lot of resources and they seem willing to spend money on, uh, you know, on their brand and their message, if I sense that they are totally not a two-way machine, Mm -hmm. then I, then I won't kill myself to, to, to be heard. But there is also a point at which there's a difference between listening and doing Mm -hmm. and clients will often say, Okay, you're, I, and I have had clients say this to me at big companies and say to me, okay, you're the new, there's a new sheriff in town. I'm telling everybody that you, you guys, you're, 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 you're it. You're the voice. Mm-hmm. You're the, you're the, they're not going to take any guff from you. They're going to mm-hmm. do it. And then, you know, you give them an idea and you, and you, you, you come to everybody with love and all this stuff and you give them the idea. And you say, okay, so is this, when does the campaign start? And owner of the brand says, well, my marketing director won't let me do it. No. Yeah. <laughs> my, the marketing won't, won't let me do it. There's not enough money. We can't do it. I, and I'm like, do you own the brand or you, or you, you don't, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I put them in place for a reason. So I've had that experience and I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, you got to people, if, if I could give, if, if somebody's listening out there and owns a brand and I could give them advice, I would say it's not about, it's not a battle between your agency and you. Mm-hmm. It's you get, get down with yourself and figure out what you want and who you are and who you want to work with and what power you want to give yourself and mm-hmm. all of those things, figure all that out. And then maybe you don't call the agency, or maybe you don't work with them. Right. You know, maybe you don't want to make any changes like my Mm -hmm. story. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm making decisions that I want to make. And I just don't like that. I want to make those decisions and, you know, I have to reconcile all that. So that's okay. That calmed me down after Mm -hmm. years of, of fighting with them. Oh my God, they won't spend the money. They won't spend the money. They won't do the media buy. They said they were going to put a hundred thousand dollars into this campaign. And now they are now all of a sudden their perception is that the whole campaign is going to cost a hundred thousand, including the agency, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, and, 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 you know, well figure out before that was because I wanted the gig. That was right. what happened. I wanted the gig to work. So I wanted to believe that they were going to do what now, if I met them, I probably would think, no, they're probably not ready do that. Sure. And I one would tell the things, them to their face, you're not ready. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned and I've tried to counsel some of our people on sometimes when clients, we, you come with this great idea and this perfect concept and it solves the problem that the client has. The client is just like, yeah, no. And that's, that's such a mode of frustration because, well, A, I put in all this work, but B, why aren't you seeing it the way I see it? And yeah. so what I tell people all the time is there's being right and there's being successful. And sometimes they, they don't overlap. Yeah. And sometimes if you can have the best idea and you can have the, the right, do the, you can present the right idea for the client, 
But if they're not, and you can be right, but if you, you don't have them wanting to go along with that, you can either double down and say, you know, F you, we're out of here. Or you can say, okay, well, you know, you can still be successful and finish the gig. And it might not be successful and it might not be something you're going to put in your portfolio, but it's going to be what they want and it's their choice to make. Yeah. And it gets back to that simple concept of, uh, of choice making. Right. Yeah. And branding to me is less about who a company is or who a person is and more about who that person is to the people that matter most to them, their customers or their audiences. Right. Yeah. So how do you have that empathy and react in advance to what your people are looking for? Yeah. Yeah. And I like what you said, Dave, about, you know, who, who they are to the people that matter Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, uh, actress named Alex Borstein. She's a two-time Emmy winner. She's on, uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's. Love Alex. Yeah, she's yeah, magnificent. She, she plays, she plays um, Susie yeah. in, the, the, in the show. So she has her, her, her first stage show, like a cabaret show. And, one of the, and it's mm-hmm. very like, it's a, it's a cross between uh, really kind of... It's kind of trippy. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's trippy, and she, but yet she's so sincere and, and so uh, open and mm-hmm. so brave as a performer. And she says... You know, when we talk about our perception and our image, our body image, all this stuff, we call it self-image, but it has nothing to do with us. It has to do mm-hmm. with, I'm paraphrasing, but it has to do yeah. with what other people think of us. Everything we're doing yeah. is for other people. Mm-hmm. And if we looked at it that way, we might feel differently because everything that we're twisting ourselves around for is mm-hmm. for them, for somebody else. So when it comes to a brand, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Everything you're doing is for the people that matter to you. But who are those people? You know, and what are you doing for them? I always say that there's there's no such thing as personal branding because all branding is personal. You know, it's always personal. It's personal between, you know, Frito-Lay and their, you know, their hundreds of millions of, of customers. Yeah. You're billions of customers. And part of that is also knowing what, what your own book says about you. You know, if you know how people perceive you and you don't like it, you can work to defy those expectations. But unless you are open about how it is, um, how you are perceived and you have that knowledge, you're not going to be able to take that next step. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very true. What are your favorite customers to work with as you do brand conversations and as you do all of the things that you do? And we mentioned that you, you've got all kinds of irons and all kinds of fires, but for, for the branding in particular, is there a, a favorite kind of business and what makes that tick for you? Really good question, Dave, because I have given this over the, over the, one of the silver linings of this horrible pandemic was that we were forced to or seized the time to think about what we want, Mm -hmm. what we want to do, who we want to work with, and how short our time is. And so we don't want to waste it, squander it, and uh, and we want to work with who we want to work with. So an interesting thing that, that came up is that I realized I've, 
even since I was a very young person, I always enjoyed working with the people at the very, very top of a, of a business. That goes back to that thing that we talked about earlier where I never worked in a gigantic company. Sure. I never wanted to be a cog in a machine. And so as a result, I always worked directly with a CEO, directly with, uh, with an owner or founder. And I feel like that still holds, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't like working with their team or that I'm, you know, I'm a total team player collaborator as you, uh, as you have surmised, I'm sure. And, you know, but I, but I really enjoy that personal connection with the person whose company or vision I'm serving. And so that's a kind of a, a great starting point for me. And then in terms of the types of business, I realized that when there are businesses that need a personal touch, like you think of like, you know, SaaS mm-hmm. brands, like, you know, uh, uh, software as a service, mm-hmm. something that could be depersonalized or impersonal. And I have the opportunity to personalize and humanize the brand. That's the, the perfect fit. For me, what does humanizing a brand really mean? I think that's one of those things that, as marketers, we sort of understand. But for the listeners, can you unpack that away? Yeah, um, you know, humanizing a brand is goes back to that personal. It's always personal thing. Um, you look at the pieces as a puzzle. You say, okay, I got a. Think of a kid's puzzle. It doesn't have too many pieces, but it's got it's got enough. And they're like those little those little pieces, the, like the wood ones that you they fit in a certain way. Yeah. And you say, okay, I've got a product, and I've got you know the customer, the perfect customer fits into it, and I've got the you know what the company stands for, its core values, and I've got you know the the pricing, and I've got the 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 uh, um delivery deliverables and you you put them in a, in place and that's what makes it fit and make it work and i think that that creates a bond with the with the customer so what they expect and what you give them the transactional element of it is in there but one of those key pieces is how they feel about it how do they feel about it when all those pieces go in place. So humanizing doesn't mean instead of, you know, beating the crap out of our employees, we, you know, we let them walk free in the yard for an hour a day. Free range employees. Huh? <laughs> free range employees. Yeah. Free range employees. Right. We treat our employees humanely. I would hope so, but I don't mean that. I mean, you know, ha- the beating heart of a brand is more than ever, you know, you talked about authenticity in the beginning and I, I always throw the word out authenticity because I'm like, uh, you know, there's, how do you, obviously people want authentic. When did that, that became like up, up until, you know, a year ago, everybody wanted to be lied to. No, every, everybody wants authenticity. Authenticity is where you, you kind of use some kind of, chicanery to create the illusion of, 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 uh, authenticity, which is hysterical in itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that there's a, 
the way that I do it, the way I make that contribution, like I think everybody on the in the pipeline makes a contribution toward that bond, mm-hmm. right? So management, for example, how they're relating to the employees, that's going to affect the end product. That's going to affect the relationship. You know, you hear about uh, you to to talk about the treatment of employees. You hear about sweatshops. You hear about uh, d- discrimination in the workplace. You hear about th- that does influence your perception of the brand. And you may not buy that car or buy that brand because you've heard those things. Mm-hmm. So there's there's reputational stuff. I can help with some of the messaging around, you know, are you being sensitive enough or are you doing, you know, the avoiding those false notes, you know, if you're an absolutely heinous person and that's your brand, then okay, be that. There are other heinous people or other people that will kind of get excited by that and they'll subscribe to that brand and that's fine. And, and I think we're seeing that we're seeing a a fearlessness about, you know, doing things that are maybe, you know, we would think aren't, aren't nice or, or good. Right. And just being celebrated for it. Yeah. If you, if you lean into being heinous. Yeah. And you know, if you've just fundamentally jerk and you know that you, you, if you actually recognize that and lean into that, People really aren't going to be that surprised when you treat them badly. Yeah. And if they, if they like it, if they're conditioned that way, you know, to like it. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, or, or they know, sort of go in, in one ear and out the other and yeah. Like, oh, that's personality quirk. Let's get back to work. You know, but I think when people want a different kind of connection, where I can help is with the voice of that, brand like i'll mm-hmm. like i talked about t- sitting down with the ceo so i'll hear how the ceo talks and i'll hear what's in their voice and i'll hear what's in their heart and i'll hear all these things and somehow i'm i've become adept at distilling that into something that isn't necessarily coming from them because i i feel the third party voice is so important third party validation is super important right you can't it can't all be me Mm-hmm. Saying hi, I'm Bobby so and so. I started a, a stain lift thing, and this is how it does. Now, if that's the voice, that's that's great. That probably is a great part of it. But what if you're doing like an email campaign, right? And people don't need to hear the same Bobby stuff over and over, and you don't need to put him on tape constantly. But there's a voice. Well, you know what Bobby says. Bobby always explains that thing. God, we love Bobby. And and you come up with that voice that's like that omniscient kind of, you know, third party validation. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bobby's going to be at, uh, you know, a certain thing. The other, that's better than I'm going to be here and I'm going to be there, you know? Cool. I want to get back to something that you said that was really surprising to me that I genuinely don't get. Okay. You said up until last year, everybody really wanted to be lied to. Although I didn't mean that they really wanted to be. I said, what did you mean by that? Oh, so with, with the, with the authenticity thing, it's like, I don't know that it's last year. It's more than a year, but the authenticity becoming such a catch or a keyword yes. and people saying, oh, you know, millennials crave authenticity. Gen Z craves authenticity. And it was like, oh, well, so I didn't, my generation <laughs> didn't. Oh, Are you saying I, I was, yeah. a, I was a BS uh, 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 craving 
you know, society, society member. Right. No, everybody wanted authenticity if for the most part. It's mm-hmm. just we we we've recognized that a lot of people won't tolerate being lied to mm-hmm. or being uh hosed by brands. There it is. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. The reason I, I, I keyed on that is my job primarily is, is new business development. And so I sit with people all the time who don't know me and who uh, have a problem that they don't want to tell me about and they don't want to admit how bad it is. And oh. they are fully expecting that I'm going to lie to them or screw them in some way. Right. And so the way in which I win business is by being truthful and open and transparent and honest until they run out of reasons not to believe me. So the only thing left is that old Sherlock Holmes idea of if the only thing left, however implausible is the only thing left, then it must be the case. Yeah. So I found that if I'm not consistent with how I deal with people, then they're just gone. So yeah. I think that's that's kind of how I, I heard that in a different way than you said it. Yeah. Yeah. But that is true that consistency is is something we we haven't really talked about, which is which is that the time that you take to figure out who you are before you brand yourself, you know, like I say, you know, before you you brand yourself, find yourself, like get your get your ducks in a row about, about who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's because that will be easier to remember and to continue to relay and build on than saying, Oh, I'm, I'm this, I'm that we're this, we're that, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I think that consistency is so important. It's important, obviously in product quality, right? You know, a brand, you know, a certain, you know, uh, uh, a brand that you buy and it's going to be the same every time. And, and, and at this point, you know, as we get a little older, I mean, it's, I, I'm, I guess I'm going through this phase where like, I can't believe how long I've, a certain thing has been around. Yeah. Like what pops into my head is Cocoa Puffs. I don't (laughs) eat Cocoa Puffs anymore. Not even my kids eat Cocoa Puffs, but I did every day for years and years. And if I go into a a supermarket and buy a box of Cocoa Puffs and I open it up, it's going to smell like Cocoa Puffs smelled 50 years ago. Yep. Right? And that consistency is what makes, you know, brands, brands. To me, it's not the consistency in the product. It's that it's the way it makes somebody feel. Is there's a dependability to that? Yes. So in your case, you know, consistency is something that is an element of the product control of production. If you make it the same way every single time, it's going to have the same characteristics. And then you, as the buyer, go in and you smell it, and it's the first time in, in 15 years that you've smelled cocoa puffs. This is why I my wife buys a box of Frankenberry every every Halloween. Oh, so yeah. It's it's the dependability of the memory comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so then I'm not thinking of this is bad for me. I shouldn't eat this. My doctor is going to kill me because now I'm seven and I'm back in my mother's kitchen. 
sneaking it before she gets up. Nice. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that Dave, Dave talks about it just all the time is that it, it, I, and I think it was, what was it? PT Barnum who said, if you're trying to sell nails, you don't look for people who want nails. You look for people who are trying to connect two things. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, uh-huh. that's a good one. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about truth. Tastes funny. So truth tastes funny. Uh, about a year ago, I was writing a, I, you know, what happens when things get slow business-wise, although I've now gotten over this habit because I find that it's simply not a very lucrative habit, but I had a habit where when things would get slow professionally, I would turn my attention to something creative and be like, well, screw this. I'm going to do this and I'll make money out of it. Like, that's what I would tell myself. I'm going to make money out of it. I'm going to put on a show or like, like I'm in an R gang, you know, episode or something. I'm going to put on a show and fill the barn. And so, so about a year ago, I was in the midst of developing a, a stage show called Truth Tastes Funny. And it was part, it was similar to like the Alex Borstein special. It was part stand up and part cabaret or, or, or a piano bar. And I have a really good friend who's a very established music producer and he loved the idea and he's based in New York. And so that was going to be like my, my focus, you know, I was going to keep doing work and keep hustling business, but, but if it was not going to take up all my time, I was going to do, you know, and there's no real, like how much money can that make really? And what are the odds that let's say you even had a hit piano bar show in New York city. So, so what, I mean, how long is it? So, you know, but I started doing it at the same time. I got, I got approached by a gentleman named Kyle Sullivan from Pantheon FM, which is a a podcasting podcasters network. And he, he said, uh, you know, I would be looking at some of your stuff and loved your blend of comedy and branding. And I didn't, at the time, Yes Brand was not on my mind. And I had done it before. I'd already had the logo. I had created it, but it was not top of mind. And I said, oh, well, I'm doing this show, Truth Tastes Funny. I could do a podcast version of it. And it would be more like surviving and thriving in a chaotic world. Because, you know, as much as we don't like to take our medicine sometimes, and as funny as the truth may taste, you know, we have to accept it or we can't deal with it. And comedy makes it go down a little easier. And so if we blend really kind of tough human stories with a little bit of comedy, a little my kind of way, mm-hmm. maybe it could work. And I and you know, I use their guidance, Kyle and 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 Josh Tapp, the founder of that group. We're starting this collection of kind of newbie podcasters. They were used to working with with big companies and doing, having a done for you service where they, where they did everything top to bottom here, they kind of coached you and showed, pointed you toward the tools and you had to do all the legwork yourself. So that became my obsession. And again, no monetization Avenue there because, because of the subject I chose, like, you know, maybe mental health and, you know, wellness and personal development, but that, you know, that wasn't my business. I didn't have a history in there. So I didn't know I was going to turn that into any money, but I thought, all right, well, it's, I'll do that though. It's probably going to 
even if it doesn't make any money, it'll make more money than the, than the stage show. So I said, all right, let's do it. And I did it and the show grew and it honestly took off and I had an audience and I had uh, people writing reviews and I had uh, people coming back and listening every week. And then in the midst of that, I, the yes brand thing clicked and I'm like, oh, I should do a show that actually does reflect what I do for a living. And so that kind of segued. But the interesting thing was that truth was central to both. Truth was central to, you know, the truth being tasting funny and weird and we have to eat it anyway. And uh, selling the truth, which is the principle that I, that I build my, all of my branding work on, which is you can't get away from the truth of who you are and the truth of what your brand is, like we've talked about. You know, you might as well embrace it and put it, put the best face on it you possibly can and figure out how to sell this reality. And so I think the, the genuine heartfelt heart centered part of truth tastes funny really created a nice bed from which to deliver brand truths because there was credibility there. This reaction that I had had to truth tastes funny was was so natural and so organic that I felt, okay, that, that that's a flip side to my more branded self. So I don't come off like a BS artist. You know, I don't come off like I'm, like right. I'm a salesy brand mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. All they have to do is listen to Truth Tastes Funny and they know who I am. And I thought, ooh, that's, that's interesting. Also, quick shameless plug, uh, Selling the Truth comes out in fall 2023 via Leadership Books. Thank you. Yeah. I'm super excited about that. That's my first book. Congrats. I, one of the things that I, I think is really frustrating for me generally when I, I, I think comedy is so important right now because I think it's fair to say half the world is generally mad at the other half and it doesn't matter which side you put on which it's, it's just true. So being funny and allowing yourself the grace to laugh a little just becomes increasing. It is so therapeutic yet there's so many comedians like Jerry Seinfeld or complain that it's harder than ever to be funny. Oh yeah. Do you find that to be true? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I embrace the challenge, but I think it's, it is hard. It is hard. I, you know, I don't know why that is. I mean, I, and I've heard Jerry talk about that, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, Chris Rock as well. They, they don't want to do colleges anymore because, yeah. you know, every, everything's so polarized. They mm-hmm. can't just walk in and be like, you know, you can't, you can't just have come in and do charm both sides. I think that's what, that's what, you know, people used to be able to do charm both sides with a little humor and a little irony and a little self-deprecation and, uh, you know, include yourself among the fallible and everybody will get on board with it if you Mm -hmm. have the right attitude. And if you don't get the joke, if you're not in on the joke and you don't, and you don't can't laugh at yourself, then, you know, too bad for you. Then you look like a square. You look like a loser. Right. That's not, that doesn't work anymore. Right. Trigby. That's like, it doesn't, so it's so it is harder. I do think that getting to somebody's funny bone is like if you can do it. 
I mean, I guess that some people you can't get there and that's okay. I was going to say when, like, when you mentioned that everybody's mad at everybody else, my grandmother's voice popped up inside my head and I was like, you're mad at yourself. That's who you're (laughs) mad at. You know, you're not mad at me. Don, what did I do? What did I do? So you give me this, you're mad at yourself. Go, go figure out what you're angry at yourself about. Fix it and then come back. I don't care. Doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference to me. You know, and that's that's kind of my my attitude about people being angry at my point of view. Jordan Klepper had a really good explanation recently where he said that because he was talking about meeting with a Trump person and he kind of baited them into saying, you know, you know, well, what if he did this? And the, the, yeah, well, then that would be terrible. And he said, okay, well, he did that. He showed it to him. And the person said, I, I don't care. <laughs> that, was, that was it. And so mm-hmm. yeah. the realization that Jordan shared was that when you stop having individual beliefs and they're tied into your identity, then there is no laughing at it. Because yeah. it's not what you think, mm-hmm. not a position you hold. It's who you are fundamentally. And then you can't ever make fun of who people are fundamentally because then then it's just then you're just off to the races of, uh, on the offensive meter. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's this this kind of indoctrination and you know uh, cult mentality of it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what. You know what? I, and forget about like having a different belief from someone else. It doesn't matter what I believed right. before. Right. Like I might have believed in in you know everybody has it is entitled to an opinion before, mm-hmm. but now I I don't because I believe in X with no principles, no views really, no hard and fast kind of even rules mm-hmm. of of engagement. I just believe in X. Right. And that's why it's so easy to kind of catch them in foolish situations. But the problem is even the irony of the situation, even the, 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 the hypocrisy of the very statement doesn't matter because hypocrisy doesn't matter. Nothing, nothing matters. Mm -hmm. And you know, if I'm on the right side of history, nothing else matters because it just means I'm right. And that's not right. just even right wingers. You know, Jamila Jamila came out after the Met Gala recently and said and pointed out how uh, honoring Karl Lagerfeld, a man who notoriously fat shamed women for 50 years, was perhaps counterproductive. So, and that's why people don't don't believe liberals because they say, "Oh yeah, no, you have to accept everybody." But then, hey, let's. Let's celebrate this man who hated anybody over a size two. <laughs> yeah. It, it, to me, it's just, it's never been more important to be funny and also to allow people the opportunity to laugh. Yeah. 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 But laughing yeah. at ourselves is the, it, like if you, and I, and I've known practitioners of comedy and filmmakers, comedy filmmakers who have no sense of humor really about themselves. And it's, it's, it's a strange thing when you meet them and most of their audience doesn't even have any idea. And, you know, but it is a weird thing, like to separate that, separate that self-seriousness, that whole idea of, you know, cause if you can, 
if some if you can get somebody to laugh at themselves, you know, you've you've really got a shot. But it is increasingly difficult be, because I, and I and I default to that sometimes. I'm like, oh, no, you know, that's ridiculous. I'm not even going to give that any credibility that point of view. I'm going to just laugh that completely out of the room. But then the other person with that point of view doesn't laugh at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Don't you see how ridiculous that is? No. 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 That or they'll wait three days later and then call. And, yeah. And call and write or write a complaint or fill out a a Yelp review or something like that. It's like you know we're we're so we're, we have this culture of rushing to judgment right now. Yeah. Uh, allowing for a good chuckle is just is is so crucial, but yet so hard at the same time. Well, and you look at. It's interesting to look at, you know, uh, John Stewart, for example, and and uh, Stephen Colbert, and all. The, you, you, if you if we chart what's happened there, John Stewart became one of the most serious uh, figures. Yeah. In the on the landscape, mm-hmm. by his own choice, he's not really gotten into politics at this point per se, but. But he he went from satire to to just total. I mean, he still has a great sense of humor, but he but just total seriousness about the subject because he recognized there is no humor on the other side. So there's not you can't you know you can't engage in that way if there's right. no ability to laugh at it, laugh at yourself. You know, he would be willing to laugh at himself if everybody else could laugh at themselves. But if, but absent of that, so hard. And that happened with Jimmy Kimmel too. Jimmy mm-hmm. Kimmel's, you know, uh, uh, monologues became, started becoming very serious because it was very serious and, and the other side couldn't laugh at themselves. So it isn't, it got so serious that you couldn't be funny. It's that the, the sense of, of, uh, of fallibility was missing from one side. So there was no, they don't take, no, they, it's not funny. Yeah. You know, because it's me, you're making yeah. fun of me, not, you know, people who think like, or they can, they can, I know people who have such a good sense of humor that you can show them satire and they do think it's funny, but only because they don't realize it's about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they think it's about somebody else that that mm-hmm. whoever it is that the joke's on they get they think it's funny, but if they realize that that this is a uh, you know about them, then the, then the, they'll lose the they'll they'll lose it. I took my dad once to the Christopher Guest movie about folk folk music, and he's a oh mighty wind. Yeah, he's mighty a ridiculous wind. folk music junkie, and he walked out of it just toe, toe tap and was like, "That was great. Let's go buy the album." Like, right. Was, he didn't get that it wasn't. It was funny. He didn't. He, yeah, or like go see, take takes take a, a dog a dog person to best in show, and they'll right. you know a, a, someone who does those shows, and they'll just think it's about them, but they, right. they don't get the joke. Right. Yeah. You know. Wow. We are super over on time. So, <laughs> so much. Been delightful. And yeah, this would be great. I, I we could probably go another hour or two. So can we have you back on the pod when your book comes out? Oh, I would love it. Thank you, Trigby. I would love to come back. 
Excellent. And if people are looking to find you online at the Yes Brand podcast, see, I got it right. I, I am capable of learning. You you are. Where where can people find you? They can go to yesbrandmethod.com and there's contact info there too. So they can they can always find me there. And uh, Gerard Rouge on YouTube. Yes. I would like more people to watch that. I think it's a, a wonderful tribute to Boris and just so much fun to do. And I, I mean, you can imagine like shooting, like doing that, like you would never have the time that it takes to be one of, maybe the only person on some days, the only person shooting, setting up, performing, getting in costume, getting out of, and this is like on a weekday. This is on a day when we would have been, you know, working, doing Mm -hmm. a job, going to an office, going to a meeting, getting something ready to deliver to a client and just not being busy enough to do that. And literally having the time to be running around the house with a tripod and my phone and trying to measure the, the height of the chair so that when I sit in the other chair, the, the, the thing will cut the, the reverse shots will cut together. Um, so it's both a time capsule piece because I, you would not be likely to do it again. And a wonderful tribute to my late friend. Thank you, Hirsch. Do you want to end us uh, with a good joke? With a good joke. Oh, that's the, don't put it, don't put a comedian on the, on the spot with a good joke. I'm trying, you're lucky if I, if I could think of a lousy joke, well, let me see I would I- hope I, I could think of. I don't, um, Dave doesn't know this about me, but I recently took a second job. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been working at a, a manufacturing plant that makes plastic Draculas, which is nice because it helps me unwind. It's, you know, it's repetitive motion. It's great, but um, I'm a little worried about the staffing. There's only two of us uh, who work there, so I have to make every second count. <laughs> <laughs> um.